Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome in to the 30th edition of the 5 Reasons Podcast. My name is Chris Whittingham, joined as always by Ethan Skolnick. And for our 30th episode, we are joined by a special guest. He covers the Miami Hurricanes for the Palm Beach Post. He is on Twitter, at Matty Ports. Matt Porter is joining us. How are you, sir? I am just another guest. All of your guests are special. I am no more special than any of the others, but, but I'm good. But, you're, but your appearance falls on an even number, so you're special. That makes sense to me. I'm, I'm doing fine, Chris. How are you guys? Doing great. So we kind of wanted to run through. We're in the middle of spring practice right now. This will be running on a Thursday. And so we kind of we want to run through the Hurricanes from a bigger picture point of view and start to look ahead towards next year and some of the things that UM has to take care of over the next few months to really be ready for the upcoming season. So obviously Hurricanes off of probably their best season in 15 years in terms of what they ended up accomplishing and the kind of route that they took to get there. And so the first thing that we kind of have to do is now going forward with Mark Richt in his third year, kind of recalibrating expectations because last year we actually watched a college football playoff selection show that included the Miami Hurricanes up until the final week of the regular season. And so the expectations can change a little bit around this program. UM fans can start to get excited, but I guess my question to you, Matt, is to what extent, how far do you think Canes fans can go with expecting things out of this team now? We'll hit on a bunch of reasons why, you know, in this podcast as, as we, you know, as we we're kind of planning for this, you know, I, I think there's a few, maybe five, uh, <laughs> you know, if they can and, and cannot. That's um, a good number to start with, Matt. We like that yeah, number. We'll, we'll, we'll ballpark it there. We'll start there. But no, I, I think that there's a few factors, you know, that jump out and, you know, one would be the schedule. One would be the the talent base, which is growing, I think, in this in this program. Anytime a new coach takes over a program in a in a football fanatical area of the country, like somewhere in the South, you know, where people care about college football. There's always the feeling, well, you know, when so-and-so coach gets it rolling, when he starts to get his guys in there, his recruits in there, boy, we're really going to be onto something. And with a guy like Rick, who's been there before, it's not just hoping for hope's sake. I mean, he's done it. He did it at Georgia. He did everything up there, but win a national title, won a couple of SEC titles, knows what it takes to get it done. So he's now in year three and he knows what it takes and all the signs point to him having it rolling, so to speak. So, you know, the, the talent's improving. That's a big part of it. There's also luck. There's also, you know, injuries and other factors and stuff that happen during the course of the football season. But I think the overall point is Miami fans should feel pretty good because Miami's on the way. They're getting there. I'm not quite sure they're there yet, but all signs point to them being pretty close. And Ethan, the next big hurdle for them is to win the conference, isn't it? Yeah, I would think so. And what's interesting to me about you know, where we stand right now is that the optimism is still so strong, even after the way they finished the season, you know, losing the games to Pitt and obviously getting rolled, uh, rolled by Clemson, uh, 38 to three, and then, and then losing the bowl game where they were competitive. But yeah, I would think winning the conference, I mean, for years we talked about when are they finally going to win the coastal, right? Like that was the bar that was set by Al Golden and, and they never got there. 
So, you know, that's out of the way now. And I think you move to the next step of this. But I, I think at the at the end of last season, there was a feeling, as Matt's talking about, that even though you lost the last three games, that you were building something. And, and one of the topics where I know we're going to get into on the pod today is that I think that one person was scapegoated in, in large part for the three losses at the end of the season. And whether that was fair or not, I think at least what that did was it, it sort of makes people think, well, if they get better play at that particular position, that their position to, to move forward and to compete for a national title. The, the thing I want to I get into here to start with, Matt and, and Chris, is what qualifies as contending for a national title? I think we need to define that first because you can argue that, as Chris says, they were competing for a national title last season up until about, what, the 10th week, and, and then things fell apart. What to you qualifies uh, as this stage? Is this it's just being in contention for a playoff at the end or to actually make it this time? Well, I think when you're when you're in the hunt, you're in the top ten, your top eight, top six. You know, you're in that kind of range where Miami, you know, after people kind of figured out, okay, you know, they beat Virginia, they beat Florida State, then Florida State was having a bad year, and then they beat Virginia Tech in early November, and then people are starting to take them a little bit more seriously. They'd won a lot of close games, but hey, their record now after this Virginia Tech win is still perfect. They beat Notre Dame and absolutely stomped them, and I and that was one of those signature moments for that team last year that, that signaled to everybody that they'd arrived. So I think if you're in that national title conversation in November, you know, maybe not right at the top, clear cut like an Alabama, but you know, kind of in that in that five, six, seven range, you got a shot. I mean, uh, on, on most, you know, most years and, and certainly Miami until losing its last regular season game and, and then the ACC championship game, it had a shot, you know, like getting to be in the final four there. So, you know, I, I think that's the way I would say, you know, that Miami is, is quote unquote, you know, a contender. So for me, there's kind of like a pecking order of achievements, I would say. So you start first with probably, I would say beating your rivals or beating your rivals are probably, you know, the, the first measuring stick, beating Florida State, beating Notre Dame last year, you know, beating Virginia Tech, who I'd say is probably your biggest division rival. Then there is winning the division, which they finally accomplished last year. Then I would say getting into a major bowl game, right? Because you can win your division, lose in the, in the conference championship game, but get into the Orange bowl like they did last year so I think getting into one of those games and then winning one because they uh, they obviously lost to Wisconsin last year that's probably the next so I would say that's probably the step that they're at right now winning a Fiesta Bowl or a Peach Bowl or one of the major six bowl games is probably the next step for me for this program so it's probably the thing I'd like to see them and probably the benchmark for me this year is getting into one of those games as an at-large and actually competing and winning it. So I, I think that's probably the next step for me then, because if they were in the Big 12, maybe you'd say then you go and win the conference to try and get into the playoff. But the elephant in the room, and they only, can only really play them in you know in conference championship games because the way that the schedule works, is that Clemson is such a strong program at this point that I'd still say Miami is, and maybe Matt, you can correct me, a year, two years, three years worth of recruiting away from building a machine like the one that Clemson has. I think you saw in that conference championship game, even more than the result, you saw the difference in class between where the two programs are right now. Yeah, I think, you know, well, first of all, your Big 12 mention, I think, I wonder how many people in Miami, you know, care at all uh, or <laughs> have even thought about the Big 12 uh, in their daily college football uh, lives. But no, you know, I think it's funny as I reflect on the, you know, on the ACC championship game, I mean, just watching those two teams warm up. It felt kind of like Miami, Florida State in 2013, where 
Florida State was so clearly the better team. They were just so much better. They had NFL dudes, NFL-looking dudes everywhere. And, you know, Miami's got some guys that you would say that about, but, you know, not really enough of them. But I think more the more I think about it, Miami isn't really that far away. You know, you look at the fact that they didn't have Chris Herndon last year. You look at the fact they didn't have Mark Walton and Amon Richards. Those are three major league talents that were missing. And, you know, that game, you know, we're, we're talking about degrees of winning and losing here and bounces and stuff. I mean, if, if Malik Rozier throws that pass to Jeff Thomas early, scores a touchdown, ties the game, you know, then maybe you're looking at a different outcome. You know, Miami doesn't, they kind of realize that, hey, we're shorthanded, but we can fight in this game and, and keep it maybe a little bit closer than 38-3. to You also look at, you know, depth. Miami ended the year last year because of injuries, because of transfers and things like that that happen when a new coach takes over. Miami ended the year in the high 60s in scholarships. I don't have the number in front of me, but it's something like 66, 67. And even if they were a full-strength team, they would have been at 71. Clemson, the NCAA limit is 85. And, and if your eyes are kind of glazing over and you listen to this and you're kind of tuning this stuff out, that stuff matters a ton because you think, you know, if somebody gets hurt, well, who's coming in, you know, after them? Football is obviously a very brutal game. Injuries happen all the time. You know, if you go from a front-line, all-ACC type uh, linebacker to a walk-on, that's not good. Or to a guy who's kind of a scrub and, and just, you know, really nobody wanted, but he's kind of a program guy that's kind of just there for three or four years. I think the term in the NFL is just another guy, a jag. I kind of struggle to say that about a college player. I think we're a little bit softer in the media on college kids, and rightfully so. But that's a big drop-off. Clemson is at the point now where they can lose a couple guys and be okay. You know, Alabama, you know, they have 19 running backs that they can throw at. Georgia's kind of getting the same way. Clemson isn't quite that deep, but they're pretty darn deep. You know, really, you know, we're talking about those teams. We're talking about teams that really can chug along and, and, and really withstand pretty much anything. Miami's not there yet. And, you know, when they lost Amon Richards, when Malik Rozier had his, uh, his shoulder injury midseason, probably contributed to some of his struggles. And then he loses a, a Amon Richards, he loses Chris Herndon. They've been fighting, uh, doing pretty well in the backfield without Mark Walton. But, you know, I think that kind of caught up to him a little bit. They're a little bit banged up on the offensive line. You know, they just didn't really have the guys that they could roll in there. And it kind of extends to practices and things like that. Now you're not practicing at optimal full strength because you, know, you don't have practice bodies and things like that to go against. It gets kind of tough, you know, and the season can really wear you out if you're already shorthanded. So Miami's building that back up, a couple of good recruiting classes. And I think they'll, they'll be pretty close to Clemson this year and, and in the next couple of years. But, you know, if they're a full-strength team, they're not that far away from Clemson. You know, maybe not a 38-3 to far away, maybe a little bit closer than that. All right, so let's go to move on to that to that kind of elephant in the room right now. The, the the quarterbacking position with Malik Rozier last year, there were times where you know he looked he threw incredible deep passes and and had moments in games that were that helped Miami win them. Frank, obviously, you know you go to the Florida State game, he was terrible in the first half. They scored zero points on offense, and then they kind of turned it on and go haymaker for haymaker with the Seminoles in the fourth quarter. And then in the Georgia Tech game with the throw at the end of the game again to Langham to go in and clinch that game. But when you kind of look at it in totality, Malik Rozier, when you look at what ended up happening in, in the postseason in college football, the quarterback play that you saw from some of those teams, Miami was never going to be at that level of a Kelly Bryant or you know a Hurts slash Tua combination. So it, when, when you kind of look at 
the quarterbacking situation, you know, I've read your stories about kind of how it's going, but you can never really get a real sense of it in terms of not being able to see it day to day. But what do you know about the quarterbacking uh, battle right now? I saw you, you wrote a story about how it's not just in between Perry and Rozier, that there's two other candidates there as well. But what do you know about the quarterbacking battle at the moment? Yeah, I just wanted to make the point in that story just to not count them out. I think Miami would be very happy if Malik Rozier was healthy, he was focused, and he was more accurate. And then they'd feel pretty good about him as a starting quarterback because he has been in the system. This is his third year now. He knows what to do. There seems to be some level of trust there, although I know there is frustration on the part of the coaching staff that when you have your first-year starting quarterback, you know, you have to yank him twice because he's not fiery enough. He's not leading enough. You know, it's not a question of his accuracy why he was pulled from the UNC game and, and the Pitt game. is because he wasn't fired up enough. He wasn't doing enough to take charge of the huddle and things like that. When you're the starting quarterback, you can't have that. And I'm not entirely certain Miami has that guy on their roster right now. I still need to see it from Nikozi Perry. He's a quiet guy. He's, in fairness to him, we haven't had the chance to talk to him very much. We've only had a few interviews while he's been a hurricane, you know, when he, when he, while he's been in college, I've talked to him, you know, when he was a recruit, never struck me as the type of guy who's going to get everybody's attention by, you know, yelling or, you know, just kind of being that vocal presence. But he's still young. Maybe that'll come. Cade Weldon's that kind of guy, I think. I don't know. I don't know how good of a thrower he is. Haven't really seen anything of him. So I don't know if they have the guy in their roster right now. We'll see. I do know that, like I said, there is some kind of trust in Malik Rozier, and but he's got to be a lot better for them to win ball games. The good news is they have a lot of skill talent, and that should help anybody who, who wins the starting quarterback, whether it be Rozier or Perry. They'd be my two contenders at this point. I know fans are fired up about Perry. Part of that is the comments from Rick. I mean, Rick has made no secret. He, he, he likes Perry's talent. He, he thinks he's a you know got a real strong arm. He, he can throw it real well. In watching him, he puts a nice touch on the ball. He he can flick it deep. He's one of those kind of kind of quarterbacks that just looks kind of like a an effortless, uh, you know, sixty yards that kind of thing. And obviously, he, he's fast as we've seen uh, in practices. He can run. He can move. Players talk about how he can, you know, see a defensive end crashing and and juke him out of his shoes and then you know go pick up yardage and things like that. That stuff Rozier can do a little bit, but that's stuff that apparently Perry can do a lot. Now, is he the leader that they want? Is can he run the offense? How is he under pressure? We don't know any of this. And obviously, it's still early. So we'll see how this thing develops. But right now, I'd still say uh, Perry and Rozier are, are my two leaders. And Miami would be happy with each. But there's obviously a lot more tape on uh, Malik Rozier right now, for better or worse. Matt, you mentioned Rick pulling uh, Rozier out a couple times at the end of last season. I'm curious how he wants to handle this this year. I mean, if he goes forward with one guy and it, it looks like it may be Rozier at the start of the season, what is sort of the breaking point going to be there? I mean, is Rick the type that's going to be, you know, maybe guy has a bad week. He goes with the other guy the next week or pulls a guy during a game because I mean, the only thing I can see happening here if he does that is, as you mentioned, the, the fan base, you know, clearly, and I'm sure you get this on your mentions a lot. The, the fan base clearly wants Perry, right? I mean, the, the, the fan base wants to see new. They, they had enough of Rozier at the end of last season. So I guess how dangerous is it for Rick if he doesn't sort of pick a guy and go with that guy? And if he and, you know, one thing that Chris mentioned on a previous pod that we did was, you know, there's a couple of games early where they may be blowout situations and, and, you know, Rick might just want to get Perry some work. How dangerous is that considering again, that you have a fan base that may want him to play all the time anyway? 
Well, I mean, I'll say this for Mark Rick. I don't think anything is dangerous for him. I mean, his job is as secure as you could as could be. He doesn't let any of this kind of stuff affect him. He's 58. He's been through this before. He's a very, you know, calm guy. He doesn't really not like none of this affects him, basically. So he's not going to crack. I mean, I, I I say that because I covered out Golden. This is the type of thing that would really bother him. You know, I think he would kind of think he would kind of struggle with this kind of thing. Rick has seen it, done it. Doesn't really it's not going to affect him at all. So Rick has played two guys before. He basically he's. He wants to see an accurate quarterback. He wants to see a guy who's not going to, you know, turn the ball over. And and um, the guy's dynamic, so much the better. But he's looking for kind of that base uh, baseline safety, I guess, safety net, the accuracy, the you know, the ability to not go out there and lose the game. He'd love a guy that can win the game, but he would rather see a guy not lose it. So I think if Perry can prove that in the first month of the season, he'll get more playing time. If he can prove it in camp, he'll play against LSU. I, I wouldn't bet money on that right now, but you know, Miami's got that you know that game against LSU September second in Arlington, Texas. If they lose that, then you got to wonder kind of where they're at in the college football playoff picture, and and that kind of stuff matters now and has always mattered. But you know, certainly right now, um, you, know, you set yourself back if you lose that first game, especially considering LSU lost a lot. I'm sure we'll talk about them in a little bit, but you know, LSU is not exactly the uh, you know, the ass kicking uh, LSU that it was in the past. So you, you go with the safe pick, I think, in, in, in week one and in, on a neutral site, which is probably going to sound like an LSU home game, considering the distance between the Dallas area and uh, Baton Rouge. But Perry, I think, is going to get plenty of reps in September. Uh, you know, that is unless he gets passed, which I, I, I wouldn't bet on. But, you know, I think pretty clearly he's the backup right now. Whether he's the starter depends on these scrimmages coming up and, and, uh, you know, how he looks in the offseason and their seven-on-seven work and, and uh, you know, which I guess coaches aren't allowed to be at, but certainly Rick will find out, you know, how he's looking and everything like that. And uh, fall camp. Yeah, and, and the thing you, you mentioned about the LSU game needing to be ready from day one, the Hurricanes haven't had to be ready for day one since 2014, which was Brad Kaya's first game against Louisville. And so the last three years they played FCS opponents. And so you could have... They didn't, you know. They've gone with it once they started with a quarterback, whether it was Kyle Rozier. They've gone with him for the for the entirety of the season. But the, the Hurricanes have to be ready from opening day, and I guess they do get some benefit of playing on a neutral site because, while well, I, I imagine there will there, there will be plenty of Canes fans there. I don't know if it's quite the chorus. I, I just I go back to last year with the Dolphins, and anytime Jay Cutler had a bad series, you know, it, like this is a season opener, or, you know, home opener, they're chanting for Matt Moore, and so. I just think that these kinds of situations have the potential to get ugly. I know that Mark Richt doesn't particularly care about listening to public noise or any of that, but it's still going to be the most talked about thing when it comes to the UM program this year. So I'll be curious, not if he caves, but you know how it affects the whole situation. I guess my, my last follow-up on this subject would be, would you have expected Perry to have been further along by now? Because I think the sentiments coming on on the eve of spring practice were, you know, it's Rozier's job to lose and Perry has to win it off of him. But I would have figured that Perry might have been further along given the hype, some of the hype that he came in with. Yeah, and, and I think, I think it's fair to, you know, maybe not hammer them for quarterback recruiting, but just kind of like question it a little bit. These guys it doesn't seem like they have that alpha dog right now. And, and I know I'm probably, you know, going to get freezing cold taked for that, but it's, you know, Perry, like, like, for example, like last year, 
you know, Rick said he was disappointed that none of the guys on campus stepped up and, you know, took the reins of, of the, uh, the starting job, you know, knowing that Brad Kaya was, you know, in his last year, this is going back two years ago now, but, um, you know, Brad Kaya was in his last year. Okay. Well, who's going to be the next guy? You know, where's the quarterback saying, um, you know, I'm going to be the guy. There's nobody who's going to beat me out when Brad Kaya leaves. Rick didn't see that at all. And whether that's him kind of taking over a new program and being tough on his quarterbacks that, you know, he didn't really recruit is one thing. Um, but, uh, you know, you kind, of, you kind of just wonder, you know, where is Perry that take charge kind of guy? I don't know yet. Um, I, I, you know, it definitely remains to be seen. I, I haven't heard that from from uh, from teammates and, and from coaches and people who watch practice and things like that. They're more inside the program than me. Um but, you know, you hear things like, you know, he's becoming a leader. I like what I see, you know, but there's never like stories coming out of practice about how, you know, Perry is, you know, clearly the guy. And I don't know. I, that's all. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game. I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Miami Heat. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Spring football talk, you know, soon we'll have, you know, actual scrimmage performances to judge these guys on. Can't wait to see the spring game, see how these guys actually look, um, you know, under pressure. But uh, I don't know. It's uh, you, you do wonder if they do have that guy um, on on campus who who can really be the uh, the take charge leader. I guess we'll see. 
All right, so let's go ahead and move on now to uh, the other elements of the team that will have to be right in order for the Hurricanes to kind of kick on after a successful 2017 campaign. And we, we'll call this section the good-on-the-line section. So what, what for you, in, in terms of the defensive line first, they lose a lot of quality contributors. They lose their D-line coach. And I've, I've read some about the, the, the new coach that they've brought in. But I really, you know, became a, a huge fan of Craig Kuligowski during his time here. You read up on his resume. It's so impressive over the course of years. And then he came and manufactured an incredible defensive line when I would say that was probably the biggest area of weakness in the Al Golden era. They did not produce defensive linemen that uh, that, that helped them stop the run or, or get after the quarterback. And over the last two years, that's probably been one of their bigger strengths. So... Uh, in, in terms of the defensive side of things, how do they go about replacing what they've lost? One of the things that fans really hated about the, the golden era was that the defensive linemen were asked to play this style where they're, you know, it's a 3-4 scheme where players are, are asked to take on blocks and, and read and react. and Fill your gaps. Yeah, wait for something to happen rather than get across the line, you know, run into the backfield. Fans are used to seeing down here because that's what the great, you know, Jimmy Johnson teams did. That's what the great Hurricanes teams of old, did, you know, used to do. I like watching that a lot more <laughs> than than kind of <laughs> larger players stand there and wait. And and you know, I can't believe that you know I used to hear that and I was new to the beat and I was told that you know, well, we don't read and react. And I'm like, well, yeah, you do. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you do. But anyway, you know, and that's that's one of the reasons why when Manny Diaz took over as defensive coordinator, you know, everybody loved him because, you know, he went out there and said, we're going to be 4-3 again. We're going to be the Hurricane teams of old. And obviously that's, you know, like candy to Hurricanes fans. Craig Kuligowski was more than happy to coach in that style and uh, brought that resume that you talked about. So, you know, he got a lot of love. Now they lose him and, and they lose six scholarship defensive linemen, which is kind of a lot, you know, for, for really any team. And. And certainly Miami was already, you know, maybe one or two scholarships light in that area. That's that's tough. And and what that means now is that, you know, they have four defensive tackles who are playing during spring ball, one of which that really hasn't seen any game action that I can remember. He might have had a couple snaps. That's Tyreek Martin. So they're playing seven on seven, you know, at times where they should be, you know, 11 on 11, just because they've said, you know, we're not even going to try to use defensive linemen right now. So that's kind of where they're at. All that being said, the frontline guys are very good. And this kind of goes back to, you know, talking about the Miami versus Clemson stuff. I mean, Clemson's got two sets of defensive linemen that they go to war with against anybody. Miami's got maybe like one set, maybe like one and a third of, of you know, set of defensive linemen, not quite two full, you know, defensive lines. But they got, you know, guys like Joe Jackson, Jonathan Garvin, two all ACC caliber defensive ends, players who will be drafted in the high rounds of the NFL draft, no question about it, you know, assuming they stay healthy and, and productive. At defensive tackle, they're a little bit more worrisome, only because of depth and, and the fact that, you know, you have got a, a guy in Gerald Willis, who was a redshirt senior, former blue-chip recruit, had tons of off-the-field issues, sat out last year for what UM won't really talk about, but is, has called personal reasons. So basically he was on sabbatical for a year. You know, but he's, he's promising, and we've heard for three years now because he spent, you know, time off the field. He, he, tra he transferred from Florida. Entering the 2015 season, sat out that year. All we heard that year was that he was ripping it up on scout team. Nobody could block him. We're hearing the same thing this spring. But, you know, he's really only had one year in 2016 where he, you know, was even on the field at all, and he was suspended a couple of those games. So you're counting on him to be the guy in the middle for you to replace 
Kendrick Norton and R.J. McIntosh, who are off to the NFL. I don't know. And then you have John Ford, who came in late in camp last year because of academic issues. Um, they're expecting that he and, and, and Willis will be a, a nice pair there. you got a workman-like guy in Pat Bethel, who's kind of like the, the Trent Harris of defensive tackles, I guess. You know, not like a super athlete. And then you have recruits coming in in the summer. Those three are really it for the spring. And then you have recruits coming in in the summer. So, I don't know. We'll see. There's, there's a lot to like there, but there's a lot, that, uh, a lot of questions I have uh, about the defensive line. Well, the other issue is on the other line and how these guys, we talk about Perry and Rozier, how they're going to be protected. Now, they've made some changes here on the offensive line. So so really, I, I guess only two guys right now are, are, are set up at the same positions they were at last year? Yeah, it, basically that, that would be Tyler Gauthier, the center, and the other would be Navon Donaldson, who was a freshman All-American last year at right guard, and sky-high potential for him. People at, at Miami are really excited about what he can do with just a Super strong guy who can run better than any 350-pounder I've ever seen. They also like Tyree St. Louis, who was the right tackle uh, last year. He's entering his senior year. He's going to switch, uh, or at least he's going to get the first crack anyway, at switching from right to left tackle. I would expect that he, that he stays. Um, they're giving a couple veterans who haven't played a shot at, at replacing um, you know, a couple of the holes there, filling a couple of the holes there. That would be uh, at uh, left guard, Jahair Jones, who was a Juco kid a couple years ago, just really hasn't done anything yet, hasn't seen any meaningful, uh, any meaningful minutes. And then on the right side, uh, right tackle, where St. Louis used to play before he switched to left, would be uh, George Brown, who was a three-star recruit, who signed with LSU, transferred after his freshman year, and hasn't done anything of note uh, on the field in a game yet. The good news is there is that there's some uh, recruits that are pretty happy with how they've recruited along the offensive line which is very good news because Miami's offensive line recruiting was pretty weak, honestly, towards the end of the Al Golden era where Arkeo was, you know, a legend, but recruiting really wasn't an area of strength towards the end of his tenure. And um, that's an area where they really had to rebuild both in numbers and in, and in quality. So it seems like they're doing that now. It's just who's ready to, to take a job right now. I don't think anybody's set yet on that. All right, so let's, now let's move to the uh, the fourth part of this. Let's move to the skill positions and I want to start at running back because obviously they bring back Travis Homer and DJ Dallas, and then they've added quite a bit on the recruiting front. So they had a fullback too. So what is this running game going to look like heading into 2018? I really like Miami's skill positions in general and, and running back. Definitely. I like the receivers more. I don't really like the tight ends very much at all uh, at this point. We'll get into that. But running back, I think they look pretty good. You know, you lose Mark Walton, but they didn't really have him last year. And they actually did okay. Travis Homer and DJ Dallas combined for 1,100 yards, 11 touchdowns. Showed a lot of uh, tough running ability. They're both reasonably fast. Homer's very fast, I'd say. He's got probably the, he's probably the fastest on the roster. Last year, I would say Lorenzo Lingard, the freshman, is has world-class speed. He's a, a track star. He's a guy who's thinking about going to the Olympics at some point. I don't know if he's going to get there. He has that kind of speed where that's at least a consideration for him if he trains, you know, in that way, if he wasn't a football guy. So Travis Homer is never going to be in the spotlight just because he really doesn't like the attention, it seems. He, he's, he doesn't really say much to us in the media. He's kind of a different cat. He's, he loves anime. Fans will remember his, last year his touchdown celebration was, I, I believe it is the Kamehameha. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's <laughs> like all he like put his hands. Kamehameha, I believe it is. You would know that. <laughs> um, <laughs> like my, I, it was really popular when I was a kid. I mean, oh god, you're like 17, aren't you? Yes, I'm very old. I turned 34. 
week. Don't but, uh, start. Don't start Porter on that. We don't want. They, that's. Let's not get into ages on this podcast. Yeah. Who cares? But anyway, Homer's really good, and, and he's like Walton. Walton was a you know a special teams guy, workout room warrior, and sounds cliche, but not everybody's that way, and and it does matter, and they really like him. And uh, then you got Lingard, really impressive kid. Still got to put on weight. Still got to figure out you know the playbook and things like that, but. He's super fast and he runs really hard. Kind of has this like, some guys have the running style where it looks like they're running harder than they are. He's running really fast and it looks like he's running really fast. Like he's got that like kind of head shake thing going on. He's fun to watch. And then they have a fullback coming in in Realist George who, you know, is going to be a freshman, but, you know, he's probably got some baby fat on his on his frame, um, listed at like 6'2", 255, but he's going to be able to move some guys when they get him out in space. And, uh... You know, they feel pretty good about the running game, even though the offensive line hasn't been great. They definitely have the guys uh, now to to be able to run the ball pretty effectively. I think we were looking last year at being this uh, huge breakout from on Richards. You mentioned earlier that his injury down the stretch of the season hurt Rozier. How does the receiving core look right now with Richards coming in here healthy? And and what is sort of I assume this is going to be the last year we're probably going to see him in Miami. What do you project for him? And and my other question on this is, you know, how do they replace Berrios? Because, you know, although there's a lot of talk about the talent of the guys who are coming in, Berrios was certainly a guy that was relied upon a lot by Rozier. So how does that play out? Yeah, that remains to be seen. Berrios really made the most of his opportunity last year with Richards out and, and having the year that he did. He was super reliable. He's always been that way, but really made some plays for them. And I'm not really sure who the slot guy is going to be. I would think, and, and this is before he even steps on campus, that Mark Pope will have a say in that in that race, depending on which recruiting service you look at, four or five-star guy from Miami Southridge really fast great body control like everything you want from a receiver is just he's very slightly built i mean that's not crazy to, to think that he could have an impact in year one obviously richard stacy coley i mean there have been plenty of freshman receivers who have been good just because teams find a way to get them the ball and um you know in some cases let them outrun people and uh, make one guy miss and then take it to the house so mark pope is that kind of guy if not him then maybe mike harley who was really light when he came in like five nine one 55 around there he looks like he's bulked up some so maybe he'll be able to take more of a pounding if he you know becomes the slot guy they moved jeff thomas uh harley's good buddy uh outside talked to thomas this week he feels pretty good he's bulkier he feels like he's going to be able to take on cornerbacks a little bit more than he could last year when really last year he could just kind of outrun guys that was his one thing but um you like that you like the smaller guys that they have and and then they have a, a mix of larger guys, too, like Lawrence Cager, who was a, an All-American high school guy who's had some injury problems. Daryl Langham, you know, was, you know, ha- had some when he was good. He was real good last year, um, kind of you know, fell off the map a few games. But, you know, that was kind of his breakout season. Uh, he'll he'll challenge for uh, for reps. You have Dale Harris, who's a senior, you know, kind of a bigger guy. And then, you know, two freshmen, <laughs> six foot three freshmen who are really well built, Brian Hightower and D. Wiggins. They like Hightower a lot. Uh, he's you know, been pretty impressive, according to coaches, uh, early in the spring. So it's early for those guys. But you know, we're talking about, you know, what, uh, I don't know how many receivers we've named here, but you know, that's, that's a lot of guys. And uh, that's still with Amon Richards um, yet to come back fully. He's, he's still limited this spring after a knee surgery in November. But the hope is that he's over all the stuff that he went through last year. Feel like I wrote the story four or five times. Just you know, Richards feels ready to break out. You know, in reviewing the season, I, I caught up with him before spring ball over the phone. We had a good talk, and 
you know, he was saying that, you know, he really wasn't right at all last year. If it, you know, it was a hamstring camp and then it was an ankle early and then he injured his hamstring again after coming back and having his best game against Duke in late September. And, you know, then he pulled his hamstring again and he was worried about it and he was worried about his hamstring. So he was dropping passes and, you know, then he, uh, tears his meniscus uh, while going up for an end zone jump ball in November. So it was just the, the worst kind of year for him. Crazy how, how similar it was to Stacey Coley's sophomore year. I really like this receiving core. You know, I, I think they have any type of receiver you want, and I, I put that receiving core up against anybody in the ACC, including Clemson, Florida State, whoever. All right, so now as we kind of look ahead to the 2018 season, let's go and go through the, the kind of major elements in the schedule. So uh, first off, you'd have to start with the neutral site games against LSU and Florida State. Uh, then I would say probably the next toughest game is at Virginia Tech. And outside of that, you're expecting nine wins from nine in terms of the other games on the schedule. So home Savannah State, at Toledo, home FIU, home North Carolina, at Virginia, at Boston College, home Duke, at Georgia Tech, and home with Pitt. Now, obviously, the, 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 the difference in locale there in that final game of the season against Pitt will probably help Miami. But would you agree my, with my kind of assessment of the schedule where there's really three games that decide this season? Yeah, to me, it's a 10-win schedule because I just think where Miami's at as a program right now and, and the relative lack of impact, uh, shall we say, on this schedule, I, I, it's just LSU is not as good as they've been. That's a neutral site game, yes, but you know Miami is coming off the Orange Bowl. They're coming off the ACC championship game. The big talk entering, you know, in the first week of, of spring ball here has been when we get Miami to talk about larger picture stuff. You know, is that they've seen this before. Now they know. You know, it's like it's like they've seen a fastball. Okay, now I can now I can hit it. They hated how last year ended. It's driving them, you know, this offseason to be better, all that kind of stuff you'd expect to hear in the start of spring ball. But for Miami, it's kind of legit. I mean, they they really felt like they had everything slip away from the end of last year. And the players that are coming back are pretty fired up to get this done. So I, I don't think that those players, the veteran guys, are they know what they're getting into, basically, on a neutral site game, on a, on a big stage and all that. So we'll see if they have the, uh, the quarterback in place and, you know, can get that done. If you win that game, you know, like you say, I mean, Savannah State, Toledo, those don't scare me. FIU is only going to beat Miami if Ken Dorsey's that quarterback. Florida State's really intriguing because they're trying to, like LSU, they're trying to replace their quarterback. New coach, new offense, all that. You just kind of, on reflex, say that, you know, it's not going to be there this year for FSU, but you never know because they recruited as well as anybody, although they dipped last year amid the coaching change. There's still a ton of talent on that roster. And uh, that game is in Miami, so that obviously helps Miami. Virginia doesn't scare, shouldn't scare anybody. Same with Boston College, same with Duke. Georgia Tech can always be weird, but Miami has had, even going back to the golden years, Miami has had great plans against Georgia Tech and executed them well. So I would give them the, the pass there. Uh, Yen with uh, Virginia Tech and Pitt, which uh, obviously Pitt last year was an absolute chaos uh, result for Miami. And and uh, really shook up the college football world, surprised everybody. Pitt's going to have a ton of confidence, even though they're coming down to Miami. They, they probably think that they can get it done. They have a quarterback in Kenny Pickett that a lot of people up there really like and, and has proven that he can get it done against Miami. There's a revenge factor thing for Miami going on, if you want to play that card. And as you mentioned, Virginia Tech, I think, is you know outside of Florida State, and you think Florida State's at home, and, and then you know LSU not being as you know what it was – Virginia Tech, you can make an argument, is the toughest game on that schedule. Going up to Blacksburg, Saturday, November, probably a ton of stuff on the line. Virginia Tech's got a really good quarterback in Josh Jackson. Always have plenty of talent on defense. 
I'm not super sold on the skill positions and, and what they have on offense, but you know, they're always going to be a challenge up there, especially in Blacksburg. So that's a big test. And, uh, I can't see Miami, you know, not winning the coastal again this year. I just feel like they've recruited well enough. I feel like you know, seeing it last year, knowing what it takes to win, they'd be my pick. Uh, and they will be my pick when I, when I cast my ballot to, uh, you know, to make it back to Charlotte. Last thing on this, Matt, and, and as I look at the schedule, like you mentioned, that there aren't a lot of high-end games on the schedule this year, and we'll have to see how the ACC is. I guess my, my final question on this would be, if you go through this, you mentioned that you think they'll win the Coastal. If they go through this and, and say they have a one-loss season, considering that the schedule doesn't seem to, again, have a lot of high-end opponents, and particularly at a conference, would one loss, do you think, be enough to likely eliminate them from a national championship picture? Oh, you're going to make me cop out on this. Like it depends on what other teams do, right? Well, sure, sure. But I'm, again, I'm, I'm looking at the schedule right now. If, if you're if you're to take a look at the ACC right now and say that, you know, it, it's going to be a, a good conference, but maybe not a, a great conference. And you don't you don't have a, a Clemson game on there, obviously, until you know you get to yeah. the ACC championship game. So maybe that changes the equation if you go in there with one loss and and you beat Clemson this time around. But you're right. There's just it doesn't look like I mean, there's no, you know, like unlike last year where there was a Notre Dame game on the schedule that, that at least you could point to, you know, and LSU, as you mentioned, maybe down a little bit this year. And, you know, I know it's a neutral site game, even though closer to LSU. I just wonder if there's an opportunity for a statement game on this schedule at all when you when you have Florida State coming off a down year like they were and you don't other than LSU have another game on the schedule that kind of jumps out at you yeah I think the statement game would be Virginia Tech given its location both physically and on the schedule the fact that it is a road game and the fact that it's you know the second to last game and will most likely carry major implications Boston College uh, on a Friday in late October if Boston College is an eight and four team you know, then that's probably a pretty good win. If they're a four and eight team, then <laughs> nobody's really looking at that as anything special. You know, the Florida State game being at home, who knows how that'll be seen? You know, a new new coach. I mean, I think you know Miami has more to lose in that game probably than Florida State. You know, especially third year Mark Rick versus first year Willie Taggart. It being a home game for Miami, you know, a lot of people in the national media are going to see that as you know a, a must win game for Miami, a game that they should win regardless of the records or how things are going for both teams at that point. But yeah, I mean, there there isn't a ton else. Uh, North Carolina as a home game, it, nobody has any respect for North Carolina. Nobody nationally, I'm talking, has any respect for Duke or you know even Georgia Tech, which has done really well. And you know, every so often, you know, they'll they'll go to the Orange Bowl or something like that, or have a nine win year. Um, so they're always a little bit scary to play. But I think you're right. There's there's no opportunity for a statement game, which which makes. You know, aside from what we've talked about, which makes the LSU game all, all that more important. If you if you get out there in Arlington and really take it to LSU, then you look pretty good if you're Miami for uh, for quite some time in your schedule. All right, so Matt Porter, we've run through everything we needed to run through. We've gotten to the. You said that you want to go through five different things. I'd say we about accomplished that goal, and uh, we really appreciate your time. I, as long as I threw a ton of information at you. I'm good. I, I feel good about this podcast. The listeners will very much appreciate the amount of information that has been provided. That'll do it for us for this edition. Again, you check out his coverage at Matty Ports on Twitter. You read it on the Palm Beach Post, whether it is online, you get the print edition. Check it out. Matt Porter's coverage of the Miami Hurricanes. It is terrific. In terms of our podcast, you can find us on Twitter at Five Reasons Pod, or you can find us on Apple Podcasts or on the Google Play Store. Thanks for listening. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.